Welcome to the Decisions That Matter podcast, where we meet with leaders from across the procurement community to discuss innovative and strategic ideas. Because when it comes to procurement, every decision matters. Welcome to the Decisions That Matter podcast. I'm your host, Alex Stonehouse. And along with me today is my co-host, Bernadette Lowney. And joining us as well is Tammy Hall, who's coming from North Carolina, from the Chapel Hill, Raleigh-Durham area. Is that right? Um, And she works for the state of North Carolina. That's right. Exactly. The Research Triangle Park. We're we're super excited to have Tammy on with us today. I'll let her go into her background here in a second, but we really saw some of your work that jumped out at us online about the the diversity and inclusion work that you all are doing in North Carolina and that you've been doing throughout your career. So if you don't mind telling the audience a little bit, where did you start off in this field? How'd you get into public sector life? And how did that lead you to the position that you're in now? Absolutely. So thank you all for inviting me. This is a great opportunity to continue to build awareness and and drive advocacy around support for minority and women-owned businesses. So thank you all for the opportunity to share my story and my perspective. So certainly I am originally from Arkansas, graduated from our flagship HBCU in Arkansas, University of Arkansas Pine Bluff, uh, where I've served on the board of alumni um, for the national organization and, and as the president of the National Alumni Association. But certainly I took a path uh, less traveled is that I left and went to DC to work uh, in politics on both the House side and the Senate side. So I've been on both sides of the aisle, having worked on the Democratic and the Republican side. And so truly my perspective has been a different one of understanding policy development, uh, having been a policy advisor, but certainly with politics, nothing is ever for forever. And there was a time when I needed to transition. And so in transitioning, I stopped halfway in my mind, North Carolina en route back to Arkansas. And I've been here for 17 years. Uh, came here after working very closely with the Minority Business Development Agency in uh, Washington, DC. And it was at a pivot, pivotal moment in North Carolina where they were passing the largest bond referendum in the country. It was a $3 billion higher education bond referendum. And there was a lot of synergy around making sure that we were inclusive and diverse as we began to redevelop higher education from a building perspective. And so I landed at the right time where I had the opportunity to go into one of the largest higher education systems, which is University of North Carolina higher education system to develop diversity and inclusion programs from the business perspective. And so I kind of landed there. I developed my niche, perfected my skill set, and became one of the experts in this industry. And I've been here ever since, um, having started the first pro, one of the first programs in North Carolina with um, North Carolina Central. And then moving from there, we uh, passed another billion-dollar bond referendum for public school systems. So I went to our largest school district to develop um, diversity and inclusion program there. And then to the second largest with another almost billion dollar, about 600 million bond referendum for Gifford County Schools, 
went into corporate life because I got tapped on the shoulder to now go in and and resolve compliance and uh, business development issues for one of the larger corporate entities where I covered California, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Florida, DC, continuing to develop these types of uh, diversity and inclusion programs along with workforce development. So continue to perfect my skill only to get another tap on the shoulder to come back to North Carolina, which I never left. I just, I, you know, worked all over the country, but I continued to reside in Durham, North Carolina, and then came to work for Governor Roy Cooper, who took on the governorship in 2017 with the top priority being diversity and inclusion from a business perspective in state government. And so, so now I'm back and I lead this effort statewide, 100 counties, uh, hub programs all over the state, and uh, I'm having a lot of fun. That's great to hear. And it's uh, it's definitely an important topic, obviously. And it's, it's interesting to hear you say that you, in your time in DC, you were working on kind of both sides of the aisle. And it is one of those topics that I think North Carolina is probably a really good example of a state that it's close enough to a swing state that Sometimes the governorship will swing one way or the other, or the mayor in your city might swing from one political party to another. But this thread of of the importance of diversity and inclusion, the importance of minority-owned businesses, it seems like it's a a thread that kind of everybody in North Carolina, like we're bought into this, no matter who's in charge, these policies and these these projects are going to be pushed through, no matter who's in charge, hopefully. And I, I think the one other thing that I really like like about this topic is that, and, and the fact that you're working on it from the business perspective is you hear a lot of governments talk about it from who they're hiring, right? So that's obviously important, bringing in people on your own team who represent the diversity of your state, the diversity of your city and all that. But then that second piece of, all right, let's make sure we're hiring businesses who are providing goods, providing services, doing all that for the state, for the city, who also fit this broad representation. And I think obviously, and we'll get into this later, in a lot of places, there's still some some work to be done to get to being kind of fully representative, but there's a lot of progress that's been made. Even if you look back to 10 years ago or 20 years ago, there's there's been a lot of progress. Do you want to talk a little bit about the, the work that you're doing right now in North Carolina and some of the most important things you've been working on for the last, say, six months or year or so? Right. So thank you. Um, we certainly are in our second term. So Governor Roy Cooper won a second term. And yeah. so we are in the midst of that term. Uh, we believe here that we've created some new synergies around diverse and, inclu- diverse and inclu- inclusive backgrounds, uh, whether that be uh, holistically or, you know, just narrowly tailored. What I believe is that to have a true diverse and inclusive environment, we start first with um, the people that we hire, making sure, as you said, the people that are in the hiring process are diverse and inclusive. And the governor has been really clear that government should represent the people. So we should look like and represent the totality of people that we have here in our constituent base. Um, so, So that's been a no brainer, but what the other valuable piece of that is that our business practices should be diverse and inclusive as well. And then certainly where we volunteer our time and our energies, whether that's in communities of color, underrepresented communities, that's a three-prone type scenario. And then when you've been able to check off the boxes in all three areas, you are bound to hit success. So certainly we have uh, really been advocates and had a great leadership uh, team that has supported our 
we call here in North Carolina, historically underutilized business programs are our hub program. And I have the great pleasure of being the director of that program, uh, providing policy and guidance all over the state relative to how we drive inclusive behaviors. We have had a 10% goal uh, on our program, which means that 10% of our goods and our construction uh, opportunities should be afforded to minority and women-owned businesses through the process. And so um, for construction, we've had that goal probably since you heard me talk about the initial bond referendum, which was in the two, early 2000s. We actually passed legislation, Senate Bill 914, that provided direct guidance um, around how these programs would operate. So there is directives around the expectation uh, relative to our construction projects and how we make good faith efforts uh, to ensure that we are meeting our goal. And so I am very pleased that over the last four years, we have exceeded that goal somewhere around 20% each and every year um, of our construction dollars have gone to historically underutilized businesses, uh, which is a tremendous uh, effort here in North Carolina. So we've been very pleased with that. So in so I know you said that that goal was set in the early 2000s. What were some of the changes that you guys had to make internally to be able to achieve that 10% goal and then eventually surpass that by 10%? Exactly. So we came up with a very structured process. So the process means that uh, my office is tied to the construction office, is also tied to the procurement office. And so we are a voice at the table to ensure that whatever our solicitations um, indicate what our needs are, that we are not unintentionally adding language that is a barrier for our minority and women-owned businesses, such as identifying um, certain types of mechanical uh, needs that would only drive one specific supplier to the table, which could be a barrier for our minority and women-owned businesses. So just making sure that we're very broad-based in our solicitations and that we clearly make uh, the approach and um, represent to this diverse business owners that we are looking for their inclusion in our supply chain. Um, so we have very strict policies, guidelines. Uh, we have a format. So from uh, the beginning of a pre-bid, we, we prepare the guidance on how you go about a pre-bid meeting uh, from opening those bids. And then all the way through to the end of the project, we have a compliance component. So uh, we also have a really good directive here in North Carolina that there is no minority woman-owned business that can be removed from a project without my approval. So if you think about 100 counties, all of the construction work that's going on here in North Carolina, we have statutes that require that my office is involved at the table uh, to negotiate any types of removals from our projects. And over four years, I can tell you, we've not done that but twice. Um, and, and that's been at the encouragement of the minority of women-owned business who may have for, had, had an unforeseeable um, issue that we needed to resolve. So it's very clear what the expectation is. And so therefore, there's not a lot of time and energy spent on um, businesses that are removed from the process because we 
the business owners here understand what our expectations are. Setting that expectation and everybody knowing what what is going to happen going forward, I think that alone really it, it gets the buy-in from the beginning, right? It's like you're working together with that supplier as a partner and they want to be a supplier for the government for 20 years. So they want to do their best they can on this contract, get the next one, get the one after that. That good faith relationship of people who are really buying into each other. That's where you see a lot of success. There's always the outliers, of course, which is part of the reason that our website exists so that people can call out the the bad apples and things like that. But um, yeah, that, that relationship is huge. So, so the program that we run here in North Carolina is more or less known as a race-based program. So you have small business programs which are race neutral, but our program is race-based, which means that we have conducted a disparity study, which is a statistical analysis audit of our procurement spending to determine whether or not an inference of discriminatory practices are in place. So not intentionally per se, but unintentionally, we have put in place some barriers that prohibit these business owners from being successful. When we think of growing our economy, the way to do that is invest in small minority and women-owned businesses, which are the engines that drive our communities. Economic stability is based on these business owners having very sustainable opportunities in this state. And so we are very serious about that. So we had a disparity study over a decade ago, and that's how our 10% goal came about because the course have been very clear. You cannot just create a race-based program just because we believe it's the right thing to do. We must have statistical analysis data that tells us that the marketplace has availability of these firms. They have tried to do business with the government and for whatever reasons, they have not been successful. And so the disparity study is a very lengthy process. And so as you heard me talk, we did that a decade ago. So clearly coming into this new administration with Governor Cooper in 2017, one of the very first priorities was to have a disparity study conducted to review our practices again. And we have just completed that study here in North Carolina. It took us one year to conduct the review. It was the largest in the country. Um, our closest competitor would have been Texas, which was probably in the early 2000s. Um, but we had over 10 million purchasing records reviewed to come up with the findings that the consultants have given to us. Um, we are in the midst of rolling out that disparity study at this time with all of our agencies. We have 220 different agencies that our program operates in. So we're rolling out the study. Out of that study came 12 recommendations that we should take a look at implementing here in North Carolina to, to better position our program to really be impactful. So we're in the midst of that. Uh, and if I had to look at any one thing that I'm most proud of, I think it is the fact that we were able to get funding for this disparity study, which we have now rolled out and are in the midst of implementing here in the state of North Carolina. And definitely with these disparity studies, I think a certain amount of humility of finding things to be proud of, but also saying like, it's okay if we still need to improve in some areas too. In terms of how often you should be doing disparity studies is like once every 10 years, is that kind of like a general recommendation that you would give? 
So the courts say that we should run a disparity study every five years. So the intent is not to run a race-based uh, diversity program forever. You're supposed to, at some point in time, remedy remedy the practices so that you are clearly laying a uh, uh, even playing field for all business owners to participate in the supply chain. And so the courts have been very clear, your program must be narrowly tailored. So just because I have a contract on the street for plumbing, I should not put a goal on that that says I want 50% MBE participation if the availability says you only have 10% availability of you know, plumbers or whatever um, industry space I'm, I'm at, you know, my project is in. So it's been very clear that you should be very uh, narrowly tailored when you come up with what your goals are. And so because of that, the court says every five years, you should run another disparity study to number one, analyze your progress but tweak where you need to modify and enhance to get to the ultimate goal of not necessarily having to run a program like this uh, in the future, but we're clearly not there. <laughs> we're not there yet. There, there are a number of factors that we still must address and we all must be cognizant of what the process entails. And what I hear many times is that, oh, this is added work. Well, nothing easy. It is simple. It does require you to be intentional. It requires you to track, benchmark, always know where your parameters are and make adjustments where necessary. To give everyone listening a, a, an idea of where this information exists, I'll link in the show notes to your LinkedIn profile so they can connect with you. But also, and I know at the top of your profile, you have pinned to the a link to the North Carolina admin page that has the, it's the HEB page, the hub page. So that includes on the top of that page, which I think is a really good example of how other places should probably be doing this. You have the hub newsletter, you have bid opportunities for different historically underutilized businesses. And then you have right up here at the top, the dis disparity uh, study report. And so I took a look through it the other day just to prepare for this interview. And I wanna say it's 127 pages or 147 pages or something like that. So if you are think either somebody who's in North Carolina who's interested in this or another government who is thinking, should we be running a disparity study? How would we go about that? What kind of questions are they asking? What do the results look like? This is essentially the blueprint. Like you could go look at this and, and figure out how to implement it yourself. So I just wanted to shout that out in case anybody's looking forward or they want to dig deeper on it. They can go to your the, the website, which is ncadmin.nc.gov slash businesses slash slash hub. And from there, would you mind giving an example of maybe you mentioned there's 12 suggestions that came out of it. I don't need you to run through all 12 and I don't expect you to have them memorized, even though you probably do. Would you mind just giving us an example of one or two of them? Right. So I will tell you one of the, the top um, identifiers or recommendation was data reform, because in order for us to run this type of a, a study or audit, you need accurate data. And if there was one thing that took us an enormous amount of time was trying to determine who held the data. Where was the data that would show us awards? So we didn't use, like normally these programs run um, their analysis from POs, so purchase orders that are created. But what we needed was actual payment award 
data. So we needed to understand the firms that were paid and how much money they actually received. And so when you think about the fact that we had 10 cabinet agencies, 10 support agencies, Council of State, 20 plus public universities, 50 plus community colleges, and you look at all of the different avenues we needed to collect the data, there was no one central repository that had all of, you know, the information that we mm -hmm. needed. And so we clearly needed need to reform our data so that we are getting the most accurate of data and so that we can really reflect um, the efforts that are being done here in North Carolina. The study, I believe, um, could have been, if I had to look and say, okay, what could we have done better? I think we could have done better here in the state reporting the data. We have done a tremendous job here in being inclusive in our business you know, efforts and, and opportunities. But if the data is not that to substantiate it, then you know, we're left without really being able to toot our horns in a meaningful way because of um, you know, lack of being able to show it statistically. So data reform, uh, coming up with a central mechanism to report is one of the recommendations. The, there's another recommendation that um, um, it requires us to develop what's called a small business reserve program. And so Governor Cooper has already instructed my office to create a small business enterprise. And so what the reserve program does is it would identify contract opportunities that were um, in a, a level um, area from a monetary perspective where small businesses could compete against small businesses. So put like businesses together to allow them to compete against each other, which if you look at our small business program, many of those businesses are historically underutilized businesses. And so we believe putting them against each other to, to um, participate and compete will give us an ultimate reward for the, that particular segment of our business population. So that is another recommendation that we, we clearly support and uh, are working very hard to figure out how do we implement something of that magnitude in collaboration, not only with the governor's leadership team, but with our general assembly and then with our stakeholders to ensure that we are um, identifying the right procurement opportunities. Yeah, and that, that's a very identifiable issue. I know one of the things that we're most proud of in, in the site that we've been able to build is when people are searching for suppliers, they're able to toggle in the upper left corner for minority-owned businesses, women-owned businesses, and then we also have disabled businesses and veteran-owned businesses. So we're always encouraging people to search there to use that Right, and what I'd add to that, one of the other proud things here in North Carolina is our office also owns the certification. So the certification program is driven by the General Assembly. They've already identified the parameters and oh, then cool. our office operates that program. But certainly we take that program very seriously because I must maintain the integrity of the database. And so the integrity of the database is making sure that you are 51% owned and operated by a minority, mm -hmm. you're involved in the day-to-day -day operations, and you know you are ex effectively managing that program or that particular business. 
And so we take that very seriously. And so we don't just grant certification. We go through and ensure that the documentation supports that you are who you say you are. Last time we spoke, you told us about the um, program that North Carolina launched during the pandemic to invest and support small minority owned businesses. We'd love to hear more about that and for you to share that story with our audience. Absolutely. That is another bright light that we have going on here in North Carolina. So clearly COVID-19 shined, you know, an additional bright light on, you know, systemic racism and, and some of the disparities that were going on uh, as it relates to, um, you know, minority and women-owned businesses, but also communities of color. And so as a result of that, uh, the governor implemented Executive Order 143, which ultimately created a task force that would examine some of the disparities. But as a result of that, what we learned during that process is that these business owners were um, tre tremendously impacted as a result of the pandemic. And so our leadership teams came together to try and figure out what can we do to help. Certainly the government SBA had issued PPP lending. And what we know from that is that a, a large population of our mainstream businesses did not get access because it required you to have relationships with the very large banking institutions. And so um, certainly small businesses you know, some of them have relationships, but many of them didn't. So as a result of, of the launch of PPP, we, we heard from many business owners, our small business owners that needed help. And that particular mechanism at that time was not the help that um, they needed. And so we all put our heads together and we creatively came up with what we call here in North Carolina, Retool NC. Um, it's the first ever grant program launched in state government. Um, the governor provided about 12 million initially for the program and it was for certified businesses. So certified historically underutilized businesses, certified disadvantaged business enterprises through our NCDOT program. And the grants were anywhere from 10,000 to $25,000. And certainly we developed the criteria. We partnered with two nonprofits to disperse the funding, but also review the criteria and ensure that the businesses that were submitting applications met that criteria. It was probably within two weeks, we were out of the 12 million, it was gone. We closed the portals down. We went back to the table and we said, governor, we need more money. And uh, the governor gave us 1.5 million additional dollars. And within a week, the portals were closed again. And so we have been able to disperse $13.5 million in small business grants to the communities. Um, we have roughly 700 business owners that receive grants. We have 100 counties, 60% of those counties had business owners that received the grants. And we covered every um, ethnic, uh, demographic of business owners that we had in our database. So we are extremely, extremely proud of the support 
that we were able to provide to these business owners and they have in return shouted back out to tell us they so much appreciated the grant funding and without it, many of them could not have survived. And so we've been just extremely pleased and proud of that effort that uh, Governor Cooper's leadership team launched here in North Carolina. You guys should be, that is really incredible. What would you say to someone that might say like, that's too much money, that's expensive, that's really hard to pull off. What is the impact of a program like this and why is it absolutely worth doing? Absolutely, because what our business owners told us, we did impact surveys prior to um, the, the pandemic, just as we knew the pandemic was coming, we, we did surveys to understand what were the needs. We've also done a post-grant uh, survey to understand, you know, what would the business owners, uh, what were their intentions to do with the funding? And if we had access to additional funding, would you say your business needs additional funding? And so what that survey shared was that many of them were able to sustain their payrolls. They were able to pay the rent that was needed for their business locations. Their, um, you know, many of them have been able to pivot and uh, retool and, and develop their websites to now they're in a position to offer um, PPE um, equipment, supplies. So we've seen a whole turn from maybe they were just doing marketing to now, you know, they've, they've been able to enhance their websites. They've been able to, you know, better communicate virtually because, you know, virtual communication, we were doing this, but not to this extent. And so now we've all gone virtually, you know, for conferences, for seminars, everything is done in a virtual atmosphere. And so we had business owners that were pivoting to be able to meet that need, um, to host conferences, to host webinars. And so we have truly seen an impact uh, from our business owners that have now been able to keep their doors open, uh, keep some of their employees on the payroll. Um, so it's been a tremendous asset. Uh, from a grant perspective. That's, that's great. And it really highlights that human element of it too, right? When you're hearing those individual stories, I'm sure you get people like in tears practically being like, we were four days away from just closing the door until we got that grant in the mail. So that that's awesome. That's, I, you know, when I, what, no, go ahead, go ahead. I was going to say one other thing that's important to know is many of the lending resources from the feds from the federal government were loans mm -hmm. and so when you think about business owners who number one many of their contracts have stopped so the thought that they will need to apply for a loan and then figure out now how am i going to pay this loan back when i have limited resources i have no contracts because of covid and now i've got to figure out how to manage that was an added burden that we really did not want business owners to to um, to go through and so the grant was uh, you know it was a no-brainer it was you know how else can we better impact these businesses and not provide them additional stress on how they now figure out payment arrangements and things of that nature when there's so much uncertainty left with the pandemic yeah and in a lot of cases the loans it just made it from being a 2020 problem to a 2022 problem. Exactly. Um, if someone else from another state, another city, another county, or a school anywhere wanted to do something like this, implement one of these 
programs from the ground up, how would you recommend they, first of all, just start thinking about this topic and these issues? And then from there, how do they start taking action from month one, month two, to year one, year two, and into building something like you've done? Because obviously this is a great example of, of how to do this. Um, but you've, of course, been working on this for a long time. So what, what recommendation would you give to someone who's trying to implement this in their own jurisdiction? Right. So what I would say is you must find champions. You must find stakeholders that have a similar interest um, and allow them to engage in conversations that lead to, you know, ultimate uh, big picture conversations for what the possibilities could be. When we look at the fact that, you know, all of our communities, we want all of our communities to thrive. We want better school systems. We want better infrastructure. We want quality paying jobs for all of our community uh, residents. And in order to do that, you must partner. If nothing is done in a vacuum. Certainly, this was not something that I could have ever accomplished here in North Carolina by working in a silo. You must open yourself up, open the opportunity for anyone and everyone that wants to come to the table and have a open conversation. It's okay to be dis to disagree, but let's not be disagreeable. And so you set the foundation, the practice of how we will move this conversation forward. Then you provide, um, you, you bring to the table your political will uh, perspective. So where there's a political will, things happen. And so you begin to develop your champions uh, through your legislative, your political bodies. And when you bring all of this intellectual capital to the table, I think you can begin to set the groundwork for how you can roll a program out similar to what we've done here in North Carolina that could lead to just a, a better uh, community, better economics for their entire community. So I see it as a no-brainer. I just truly believe I love big business, but at the end of the day, having been a part of corporate, I would move from project to project. So maybe I'm in San Francisco, now I'm in downtown LA. Now, but what you want to create is sustainable relationships that maintain the test of time. And you do that by investing in small businesses because they will be there. They will hire community people. They will hire family members. They will provide opportunities that corporate may or may not can provide, but it's a sustaining relationship and you are developing those boundaries in your communities. And so it's a no brainer for me, just bringing the people to the table and having the conversations around how do we grow everyone in this community to better walk away at the end of the day with opportunities that sustain their families. Well, I, th I think you should be proud that if uh, somebody is trying to bring up this topic or pitch it to somebody in their, one of their colleagues or their boss, that they can say, well, how about you just take a look at what North Carolina is doing? Let's run over that. And then we let's talk about what they're doing and see how we can and do it for ourselves. So, and, and that topic of, of finding people to work with and finding champions within your own circles actually segues nicely to one of our final questions that we like to ask, which is... Do you have anybody in your own life, someone who could is maybe a boss or a mentor, or it could be a family member who's really influenced your career and your, your choice to go down this path? Well, absolutely. And, um, you know, it's, it's really ironic that you mentioned that because clearly this was not a path that I initially, you know, 
thought about going down the journey of. Uh, I'm a finance person by profession and uh, certainly this was an opportunity that was presented to me and I wholeheartedly accepted it. I've had champions in my life that have said, you know, never close the door to an opportunity. But here in North Carolina, we have the biggest advocate and champion for diversity and inclusion for minority and women-owned businesses in a stellar person by the name of Mrs. Andrea Harris. And I will tell you that she has guided my way through my journey for 17 years of always tapping me on the shoulder and saying, you can do this. The unfortunate piece of this is that she passed away in May of this year. And so we have lost a, a huge giant here in North Carolina that you, you just mentioned her name and everybody knows who she is in this state. Uh, we counted on her. She has been a hero for, for all of us in the minority business community, um, having worked at the national level, having started the very first minority business program in the early 70s, uh, along with a, another colleague of hers here in North Carolina. So someone that really understood boots on the ground perspective in the form of what we call NCI Med, North Carolina Institute of Minority Economic Development. She founded that organization as a nonprofit here in uh, Durham, and she pretty much so has been involved, had been involved in every aspect of business opportunities here in North Carolina. I moved here initially because Durham was known as Black Wall Street. So it was known as the environment for Black business owners. They were thriving here. And so that really is what drew my attention here. And she was the center of all of that organizing and um, you know, setting the groundwork for this work that we do today. So the disparity study is in memory of Ms. Andrea Harris. The task force that the governor created this year we rolled out was in memory of Ms. Andrea Harris. So just a huge giant legend here in this state and all over the country and one that you know, it will be hard for us to feel her footsteps. And I just hope that in this work that I'm doing, that it somehow, you know, amounts to half of what she was attempting to do and did do here in North Carolina. So every day I feel her light shining on me. And it's just uh, something we're extremely proud of here in North Carolina. Well, that is a beautiful answer and probably our best answer to that question that we've ever had. And I'm, I'm sure um, that it really is a beautiful thing that her legacy and her memory will live on through the work that you're doing and the progress and, and all that of the projects that you all are working on. So that's, that's a really great way to hear or thing to hear. Thank you so much for joining us and sharing your stories, your experiences, and your advice with, with us and with everyone in our audience. So we really appreciate it. Thank you all. This was a great opportunity, a wonderful effort of collaboration. And I really thank you for the opportunity to share our story here in North Carolina. So thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Decisions That Matter. This podcast is brought to you by Procurated, the leading supplier evaluation tool for procurement professionals across the U.S. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you prefer to listen. See you again next time.